From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. I'm the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter, and today we have another amazing guest uh, who has agreed to come on the podcast, and it is a very unique episode. This is not going to be one that I am sending out through the stream yard and recording live. Instead, it's one that I'm going to be uh, going back later and, and doing a little bit of edits. So this may not even be the intro that I use, but uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, her name is Deborah Harnett, and uh, she is originally from Lawrence, Massachusetts. And she's going to share with us a very uh, heartfelt and uh, vulnerable story about domestic violence and how she was able to overcome uh, decades of abuse and get to the place where she is today. And I think that this is a story of courage over triumph and how to build up that resistance and get through hard things. And I think that it's a story that we all need to hear because there's a lot of people out there who think that they're stuck and they have no way out. And she found a way out. Uh, is an incredibly, incredibly uh, motivating story, but kind of a hard listen too. So um, if, if you're very triggered by domestic violence or anything like that, I uh, do want to warn you now that this is going to be a pretty uh, deep conversation uh, getting into that. But it's also going to be, like I said, a story of courage, a story of triumph, and a story of overcoming resistance. So with that, Deborah, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Teresa. So I want to first start off by getting a little bit of background about your childhood and, and how you grew up and sort of what was, what was it like for you in, in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts? I had a wonderful life. Um, my, my, I had, my parents were great. Uh, I loved my, I took care of my younger brother. My, when he was born, my mother said, you got to take care of him. It was like three and a half years apart, but he was, he was always with me. Um, we spent summers uh, at Salisbury Beach with my aunt and uncle. They had a, a beach cottage. And um, I got to surf, row boats, motor boats, um, dig clams. I mean, you <laughs> name it, we did it. <laughs> did, you, my, did you have both your parents, parents growing were, up? Yeah. Yeah. They, my, father, my father, I worked for, for, well, since I was 10, I used to mind his office. He had a construction company. And eventually I started hot topping, which is paving driveways with him. And I did every facet of the job, you know, from uh, shoveling and raking and, and scuttling and wheeling the hot top. <laughs> uh, I actually was a finished raker by the end. And um, everyone said I was better than my brother who didn't take it well, my older brother. <laughs> but then I, and I also ran a front end loader, uh, plowing snow and, you know, for the state, for the city. Wow. And for private ones. Yes. And what age uh, did you wind up moving out of your parents' house and sort of starting your journey into adulthood? Just shy of 19. How, how did that happen? Did you go off to college? Did you just decide to live on your own? No. 
I got married and um, it was was a nightmare from day one. Really? Um, The first night, I mean, we, when we got to the church, I tried to straighten his tie and he pushed my arm away and gave me an awful look. And I was like, Oh boy. Um, so I didn't say anything. And, um, my dad and my younger brother wouldn't come. Um, and just my mother and sister and, and, you know, his, his family. And we went to a local restaurant afterwards. Um, and that first night, um, he, he, he took me to, uh, it was a, a nice hotel in, in, in town. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay. I just got to say it. He raped me over and over and over again. And I was crying and begging him to stop and telling him how much he hurt me. And he just continued until he was done, you know, and, and, he said, there's something wrong with you, bitch. There's something wrong with you. You better go see a doctor. So I thought it was me. I thought, well, I, I didn't do something right or I, I right. should have just been quiet. Um, you know, the Catholic guilt, the parent, you don't want to tell yep. your parents, you don't want anything. All the standard reasons, I never said a word. Yep. So this, this, there was verbal abuse from day one. It muscled me and keep me to keep me from entering or leaving a room. In a fit of temper, once he threw a plate of spaghetti against the dining room wall, um, called me vile names because I had put on some weight. He then pushed me and I fell partly on the floor against the bed. In 86, I was bringing him his supper at work and before I knew it, I was on the ground. Jim had struck me across the face and the force bloodied, bruised, and tore my face. Jim didn't remember why he did it. 1990, in the summer, and I'm just skipping some other ones, but after slapping me and pushing me against a wall, I fell to the floor. He then dragged me by the ankles across the house and dropped me at my brother's door. Uh, he threatened my, my brother who was recuperating with us. And he said, if you want your effing brother, here's your effing brother. He how, threatened to kill Yeah, son. how long did, just very quickly, how long did you date him before you got married? And did you um, see any signs before this happened? Yes, I did. We, we argued on the first date. And um, I, there was just a physical attraction. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, sure. you think it's love. It's not, it's not, it was just, you know, just an attraction that it didn't, even though we were married 32 years, um, well, 30 together and he, two years while he was really getting a divorce. Um, you know, I, I really thought I, I loved him right. and, uh, and I thought he loved me. There was times he would, oh, pull on a show for neighbors or whomever. And then as soon as they left, right back to normal. Um, one day after slapping me, like I said, oh, that was that. Okay. He threatened to kill our son, Dale. 
if Dale moved to Oregon with us. I didn't know this until my daughter told me years later. We're in Oregon, 1993. He was angry and slammed and tore our entry door off the casing and hinges. This was a, a massive, incredibly heavy door that I think a battering ram couldn't do it, but he was so, so strong. He threw objects, uh, this is 95, for example, he threw objects heavy enough to dent the kitchen sink, faucet, and our oak dining room table. This occurred in all states, but especially in our residence in Vail, Arizona. He punched holes in the sheetrock in the garage on three separate occasions. He threatened to kill me several times and described in detail he would dis he would shoot me and dump me in the desert where no one would find me. Another way to kill me was to slash my throat with a knife and throw me in an alley. In the spring of 1997, Jim shot through the barn roof several times for no apparent reason. He had been drinking heavily as usual. In 96, he shot my lease car's rear tires out. The tire company refused to patch him because it was unsafe. Jill's, Jim still wanted me to drive with them on the car. In 96, six days after I had abdominal surgery, Jim was punching the garage door and denting the metal. I couldn't stop them, so I threw something small towards him. He hurled back something at me, and in turning, I slipped and fell on a hexagonal 15-pound dumbbell. That's the one he threw at me. Unconscious, I was later told by Jim that he had dragged me into the bedroom, wiped up the blood, and told the doctors that I fell off my horse. <laughs> Even the neighbors knew that one. How, how did you survive for those 30 years? Like, how were you able to function day to day? Did, were you in a I, I became um, obsessive compulsive. I mean, uh, the house had to be perfect. Uh, the psychiatrist and psychologist later told me that I couldn't control anything, so I controlled what I could. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, clean house, you know, all this stuff, you know, everything being perfect for him. Uh, in 97, he handcuffed me to the bed for several hours one night while he cursed and vented his anger. He finally agreed to remove the handcuffs but couldn't and had to hacksaw them off. Um, these were handcuffs my dad had when he was a deputy sheriff in Massachusetts. Um, okay, in early summer 80, 98, Jim held a huge custom-made knife pressed against my throat as I was huddled in the hallway corner. After threatening to stab me to death, he raised to death. He raised the knife and struck it in the door fractions of, of an inch from my face. In 99, he said that he was going to drown me in the toilet. He had just urinated in. He knocked my head. It was one of those bathrooms that is private. You know, you, mm -hmm. there's just one door in. He knocked my head from wall to wall as I struggled to at least flush the toilet. That same night, he punched me in the back bruising my ribs and partially collapsing my lung. X-rays later showed a previous fracture there. He had hit me across my stomach where I've had two surgeries performed. 
June 21st, 99. The day after Father's Day, I returned home with a new pool filter cartridge that had been on back order. Jim was talking on the phone, so I changed into night clothes and sat in the bed watching TV. He came into the room and said, no more games. He wanted an accounting again of our money from a recent medical settlement he had. I told him that I had gifted the children as he had told both our daughter and myself on numerous occasions that he wanted me to do so. The same question had gone on night and day for weeks. After explaining all um, the money, where the money was, he said, that's not what I want to hear. He then walked to his nightstand, got a large 45 caliber semi-automatic cocked and loaded handgun and pointed it at my head. He said he was going to kill me. I believed him. His eyes were like mere slits, his face blood his face blood red with an even more intense anger than I had ever witnessed before. But this time he had a gun in his hand, again cocked and trained on me. He took me to the kitchen where I tried to calm him down, promise him whatever he asked. After several minutes to further diffuse the situation, I said, shoot me if you want to, but the pups need to be fed. He could see my every move. And as the sliding door was only a few feet away, two of my pups ran past us and out the open garage door. He told me to get them, but not would, allow, would not allow me shoes, just the nightgown I had on. I did find them by the barn and got them in the back gate. Knowing he was following me on the other side of the fence, it had um, uneven ground, and at certain points, I could see his top of his head because he wasn't tall. Uh, I ran to call 911. The portable phone was not working, so I ran to the kitchen and dialed 911, but I did not think that I got through. Jim had shouldered the fire door that I had locked to give him, to give me time to call for help. He ripped the phone away and accused me of calling 911. I denied it, but he did not believe me. He was now in an even more terrible rage. Jim then told me to call our daughter and say goodbye that he was going to kill me now. I then called on and told her that her father had a gun pointed at my head, crying, pointed at my head, crying. I told her that I loved her and said, you know what you have to do. Take care of Jared. She and said, she assured me that her husband, Mark, was taking care of that, calling 911 with the cell phone as we spoke. Jim abruptly grabbed the phone and told Don that I had called 911. Don bought me some time by offering him money or anything that he wanted while she was crying and begging him to consider his grandson. Jim said when the doorbell rings or someone knocks at the door, he would shoot me then. The, door, the doorbell rang. Um, one second. Oh, he hung up. I asked to say goodbye to Dale before the doorbell rang. Uh, I gotta go to the next one here. Um, no, I, I know you've written this out. Wow. Well, it's in. It's in. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, 
He picked up the phone and the officer announced his presence. Jim pushed me in front of him as a shield, holding me by my left wrist. The officer asked us to come to the door and open it. But Jim refused, saying, I know you will just take me away and all and take all my guns. Jim still would not let me go to the door. Jim started to take me down a hall into our bedroom. I told the officer where he was taking me and that he still had the gun on me. And um, he made me sit in the bed and then put his gun away. His words to me were, I should have killed you, bitch. I still will. And if I can't, I'm sending someone to do it. He then surrendered to the sheriff's department, SWAT team member, Officer Lonigan, Officer Sturgeon, and another sniper. He said, it's cool. I'm coming out. The previous week, he threatened me with rape. He said, what you need is a good rape. Yeah, what you need is a good rape. He has had numerous blackouts, not remembering the night before often. And there were days at work he didn't remember what he did. His co-workers had to tell him. Um, I, I just want to add what I wrote to the, um, um, to the, the judge. My counselor had told me that he was a man's man, the judge, and that Jim would only get the minimum, which was five years for the gun possession. They had forgotten to copy down the kidnapping charge and you can't sue the county. So I wrote to the, I said, Your Honor, I allege James DeBrecker did murder me on June 21st, 1999. So much of me died that night and the rest relives it 24 hours a day. I feel his bullets piercing, piercing my body at night. I struggle to function during the day by trying to keep this hell on earth out of my mind, but cannot. James intentionally, knowingly, calculatingly, with murder on his mind, picked up that gun and put it to my head and would have splattered my blood all over the walls if officers Lonegan and Sturgeon had not arrived in time. You alone, Your Honor, have the power to keep me safe from James's threats and carrying out these threats. I beg the court to sentence James to the maximum. I will reiterate the last words James, my husband of 30 years, said to me. I should have killed you tonight, bitch. I should have killed you. But I still will, and if I can, I'll send someone to do it. Now, this was all said to him, even knowing that he was only going to give the minimum. I could not, I could not keep it in. I had to, um, I also said, uh, what's this here? Yeah. I pray that the court grants this request and understands that he is not a first time offender, but terrified me to such an extent that I cowered from from him for all those years maybe now with James unable to hurt me anymore I can finally start living without looking behind my back at every turn I realized fully that the nightmares flashbacks and other psychological damage is probably irreversible but at the fact that I will wake up at the fact that I will wake up in the morning is a gift to cherish and worth all other sacrifices. My last thought today is to let you know that James refused all help, counseling, his drinking problem, anger management, etc. 
I begged him to get help, and his answer was always the same. I'm an alcoholic, or that's supposed to, and that's supposed to excuse everything. Our pastor, Father Bob, assured me that this was not what God intended for our marriage to be like. Until then, I try to keep all together for family and religious reasons, and Jim's promise to make it his mission in life um, to find me and kill me if I ever attempted to leave him. Thank you for this time and your consideration of these facts and silly Deborah DeBrecker at the time. Um, uh, how did the judge respond? Minimum five years, just like they told me. Did she respond to the letter at all? Like, or he give any nope. kind of feedback? No, nope. nope. but the, the, my, my attorney said you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. No one made a, not a, not a, not a noise to be heard. Nothing. No words, nothing. On several occasions, Jim had told me to kill me if I could call the police. And I, if I call the police and I turned him in and pressed charges, I have now done just that. In the past, I always thought that I could talk him down. Now I know that is impossible. Just that, obviously, I felt that my life is in jeopardy as never before. Okay. Wow. That's pretty much a a start. I mean, yeah. No, it got to the point where you were either going to die or this was going to come to a head in the courtroom. I think that the authorities too are hamstrung too by the lacks of the lack of of, of stronger penalties. Sadly, uh, for certain crimes. I can't understand it because, you, you know, he he did all these things to me, and I told the judge, and I told the truth, and right. still they left me hanging with with nothing. But he, I don't. I wonder though, and again, I'm just speculating. But I wonder if a lot of that is not because of the judge. It's not because of the prosecutor. It's because no, we have the laws in our country that don't accurately protect victims of domestic violence, victims of sexual assault, victims of yep. rape. Yep. And so, so so right. There's a opportunity and a window that opens, sadly, uh, for people who really should not be on the street and and continue to do the same thing over and over again, but they still have that opportunity to do so. But I think what you did was nothing short of just absolutely, I mean, like most people would have never done that. Most people would have stuck around and probably ended up dead because once you've gone through that many years of that. It's not going to change. No, never, no, it's not going to get better. And and I, that's why I talked to the, the, the neighbors and their children, their teenage children. And I thought if I can just save one person from yep. going through what I do, what I did, and to make make them aware of what triggers there are and what to look for in an abusive relationship, the controlling. I, I couldn't go to a corner store that he didn't either follow me in or tell me I took too long. I mean, he thought I had boyfriends in every state. 
and I, 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 I oh, he kept moving me because yeah. of that. It was all in his mind. And it's so important early on, Deborah, for people to see these signs. I mean, I don't care if it's a, you know, uh, a gay relationship or in very rare cases, I know it happens. It's, it's, it's the woman who's the controlling one who, who right. dominates the relationship. And there's, yeah. and there's a rheostat of different types of behaviors that are controlling. Um, not everybody has the extreme that you went through, but I yeah. think that there are so many people who can benefit from hearing the story and seeing those early signs of control and hopefully extricating themselves from that situation early on when they see those signs so that they don't have to go through 30 years of what you went through. And so that's the importance of sharing your story and giving a voice to many voiceless people who unfortunately some of those people ended up dead. I mean, Deborah, you, right. you could have ended up dead. I, I truly expected it. And when I went out for the puppies, I thought, look, he's going to kill me. I think it would hurt least if I didn't see it coming. So that's when I said, shoot me if you want, but I'm going out for the puppies. And I fully expected he'd shoot me. I've and heard- I, wow. I still, I mean, I, I have nightmares. I have, I have to take a special medication for flashbacks. And uh, not that it works completely all the time. <laughs> sure. But I, I have these, um, what are they called? Night terrors. And I also have, I think I told you, sleep apnea and also narcolepsy. Now, I'm trying to remember if it's one or the other, which one is, is triggered by abuse. I had it. Trauma. I had it brain damage. He gave it to me. He hit me with the, that um, hexagonal dumbbell and I got 15 staples in my head bleeding on the brain and um, they didn't expect me to pull through. And, um, you know. It's, I was just going to say that I think one of the misconceptions about trauma um, and is that you can just read this self-help book or, or do all these things. Um, I think that your progression is going to be incremental towards and proportional to what you went through. So because of what you've endured, just the fact that you're still functioning, just the fact that you're able to now even have the courage to share your story, that's something to be celebrated. And I think that a lot of people feel like, oh, this is something that you can just move past and heal. No, I I think that realistically speaking, this is probably going to be something that you work through for the rest of your life, one way or another. And I agree. And and, and I think that you have to make peace with that. And I think that that's probably, you know, my my trauma is, is very small scale compared to yours, but that's what I'm sort of grappling with is the idea that I think that you need to make peace with the fact that you're just going to move a little further down the road. You're never going to be this 100% totally happy all the time healed person, <laughs> but what you can do is do what you're doing today. Well, I'll tell you, I, I did go to counseling and shared my story many times, but um, I, 
I feel that um, I, I, I had a real hard time. The, the psychologist told me it took two years for me to put a sentence together without stuttering constantly. When I get nervous now, I stutter. I have to have, my doctor cannot be um, brusque or, you know, rough. I have to have someone that's, you know, extremely understanding and quiet, which, which I have and I'm very grateful for. But there is, I was doing well after I, maybe after the first 10 years, I was, I thought I was functioning okay. I had the dogs, I was breeding them. I was very, very busy. Yeah. And then in the last, I lost my husband. I married, remarried. I got an annulment and I married my Johnny. And we were together five years. And when I lost him, I think everything kind of went by the boards. So I, um, I then began having trouble again. Of course. Know, yep. Sleeping, whatever. But the last couple of years have been horrific. And that's when I, apparently, this diagnosis of, um, of, of sleep apnea and narcolepsy is because of what he's done to me. And my body is saying, hey, it's fight or flee, and we're afraid. So we're not going to let you go to sleep. It's your body trying to protect you from him hurting me again. What was it like those years with your um, deceased husband? Do you feel oh, like you were in a state of... Oh, he, was, he, he was the best. I, I have to laugh because I, I, I'm so crazy about him still now. Sure. You know, I talk to him all day long. And, um, you know, he's here with me. I mean, yep. he's, he was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean... Finances aside, this sure. man, I felt completely safe with, completely safe. Wow. And it's just like this, the sound, I mean, the song says, I, he kept me safe, he kept me sane, and he kept me so secure, mm -hmm. securing his love. If I ever, if ever he was upset, or I was upset, he says, hey, we got to get along, you know, just yeah. pal. And um, if if I apologize, he says water under the dam. Ancient no, ancient history. Myers water under the dam. Ancient history. He was he was the best. I mean, you just don't find him yep. like my guy anymore. I and, wonder. I wonder if some of this is because it's just so hard to try to take on life on your own. Um, could be. Could be. Um, I have to sell, I'm selling my house because um, I can't take care of the size anymore. It's a gorgeous home. I have, I have like 2,600 square feet. Um, it's only less than two years old and pool, five acres. You know, it's just great neighbors, great neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But I can't handle the physical cleaning no. anymore. Even though I hire someone to come in every couple of weeks, it's still the it's still maintaining a home. I, I'd never own a home if it wasn't for my husband. So I understand. And, and I, I I I will downsize. I'm not ready to go to a retirement home yet, but right. I will downsize and get you know, of course, a lot less land and just have the pool. Um, 
though I'm waiting for a biopsy to come back. And it's funny, when I called, they said um, they wouldn't tell me on the phone. They said, you need to come into the office and we're going to give you, you know, have you talked to the doctor and she wants me to go see my, my regular doctor about it. Now, what it means, I have no idea, but, you know, um, I spent a huge amount of time in the sun, so, uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be surprised with whatever they come by. That's crazy. I mean, that's just such a crazy turn of events that you probably could have just never anticipated after what happened to you and life has to move on. And that's the, the hardest part is what do you do to pick up the pieces after something like that's happened? And I'm not just talking about your, uh, um, first husband, I'm talking about what, what's happened with you becoming a widow. And I, my heart goes out to you because I know that there isn't anything that I can say or do that can, are you there? So what I was saying is I think it takes an amazing amount of courage and bravery uh, to come forward and share this story now, especially after what you've been through. Um, with what happened with uh, your second husband and then where you are today with your health and everything else that's going on. And I guess my question for you is why did you want to come forward and share your story at this point? I think after listening to some of your previous podcasts and reading, you know, people's stories, I thought this might be might be something you may be interested in, even though it wasn't connected to military. Oh, he was in, Nash, in the National Guard, but let me tell you, they, they took into account his military service. All the National Guard was, at least we, we, we were, the wives brought cases of beer and threw them over the fence to him. All they did was have a drinking party. He came home once, and this is early marriage, with the two, well, I got the bill, $220 for wine and cheese. Now, that's probably like $5,000 now. You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, I think it was making $35 a week. So it, <laughs> I, I, all I can say is he was something else. Yeah, Not well, I, I mean, the focus of my podcast is more just people who have an extraordinary story that can help others, assist others, inspire others. And I made it broad on purpose. I happen to just know a lot of people in the military. And that's sort of what I'm drawn to because that's been my life for the past almost 26 years. But I'm very open to hosting people who are not in the military as well. It just That's just what has been my primary focus and my audience up till this point. What it, What is it that you would advise others who are in it? A marriage or in a relationship and they can see that it's starting to be controlling or abusive, what is your advice for them? Get out at first sign. Do not wait. Do not pass go. Collect 200. Nothing. Nothing is more important than your life. Absolutely. And I, I didn't listen to, to myself and that's what happened. You know, um, the shame with my parents. I mean, I just I just, I couldn't imagine it. But now I think, you know, let me say one thing. I digress a bit. 
when I was a child, I'd say about 10, my, in the, we lived in a three-decker my family owned, and my supposed godfather, I wouldn't call him that at all, but he was married to a lovely woman, and he beat her, abused her, something terrible. We heard the, the fights at night, the, him hitting her, screaming for help. Now, my father and my mother and myself would hear all this, you know, almost, almost to the floor. And um, I said, why won't you stop him? And they said, well, we don't want to interfere. We can't interfere with anything. And I took that to mean, and I think it affected me later in life when I thought, hey, I cannot, I cannot say anything because my mother told me that you have, he's your husband now, you have to do whatever he wants mm -hmm. and give him whatever he wants or needs. So I really felt that my life was cemented in and there was no one that was going to help me. I understand. I understand completely. Makes perfect sense. And hopefully somebody who hears this today will heed that message and go, I've got an opportunity. I'm still young. I can get out in my 20s or my late teens or even my yep. 30s or 40s, whenever that time is and say enough is enough. And I think that domestic violence is not only a big thing out in the civilian world, it's huge in the military circles too. And I believe it. Yep. I mean, I've heard a lot and, you know, about, about that. And it, it's a, the whole world has a huge problem with this. This is not an isolated situation. It's, it's not. And the laws are not strong enough. So would encourage anyone to, if they're so inclined and they've dealt with something like this, join an advocacy group that's fighting for stronger laws. Um, I talk a lot about on my podcast that if you're passionate about something, you have to change policy because yep. unfortunately, like you said, pin drop in the room because the judges and the lawyers knew what you'd been through and what you suffered, but they also knew that the consequences for him weren't going to be commiserate exactly. with what exactly. he did to you. And that's, that mm -hmm. must be a frustrating feeling for them as well because nobody well, likes the counselors they they said i'm so sorry after everything you've been through we, we we can't do anything we this is what we've heard about the judge and right that was it and i heard a similar story from my girlfriend who is a sexual assault survivor who experienced abuse at the hands of a doctor who was contracted by the veterans affairs administration yeah. prosecution did all they could but until the laws are stronger there's unfortunately not much they can do. So that's why joining organizations that are fighting for better laws is, is really the key. And that's the long game and it's hard and it sucks. And you send a bunch of emails and letters and testify and sometimes it doesn't go anywhere, but it's the only thing you can do. What's next for you, Deborah, as you move forward uh, with your healing and your journey? Well, I'll tell you, normally I'm a very happy person and I want to get back to that. So that's why I'm selling the house. I'm going to start over in a, in a new place and, and um, you know, something I can, can take care of and take care Good. of myself and my physical needs. I would love to help others, but I really do not know how. 
Well, I think this is one of your first steps in doing so. Um, it's an honor to interview you for this podcast. I look forward to posting this afterwards. And I think that a lot of people are going to hear this message and be inspired by it, Deborah. So this is the first step. There's other steps that you can take from this point forward, and I, and I hope you do so. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm going to stop the recording now. Okay. So that was one of the hardest uh, podcasts I've ever done up till now. And I just wanted to close with saying that if you are a victim of domestic violence, seek help, as hard as that is. It could start with just finding somebody that you trust that you can share this story with. And if you need any help or any access to resources, please let me know. There are Facebook groups. There are free counseling available. There are hotlines. Do not suffer in silence. I thank you so much for watching this episode. These are some of the hardest emotionally for me to do because they do trigger things within me, even if it's not the same situation. And I think it's that important that I'm willing to do them. And I hope that Deborah's story can inspire you the way it inspired me. Thank you. Take care and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye now.